Well, good morning, everybody, again, and so great to be together, and man, just so thankful for our worship team. Week in and week out, they faithfully shepherd us and lead us into God's presence and, and help us see Jesus more clearly. As we sing these words uh, from these songs, we, we have a, a better picture. It's uh, of, who he, of who he is and what he's really like. And, and it, we may not see the fullness of it yet, but moment by moment, as we continue to, to press in and lean into it, the, the, who Jesus is, is, is revealed all the more. And that's our desire as we worship together as a family. My name's Andy. I'm the executive pastor here. It's my honor and joy to be with you and, and to help lead us as we move forward this morning through our current sermon series, which is called Life in His Name, which is a study in the book of John. And the reason we've called it Life in His Name is because John has told us that that is the reason that he has written the book. It says this in, in John chapter 20, but these, meaning that the signs, the, the miracles, the, the testimonies that are recorded in John's book, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is very much concerned with our belief with what we believe and, and who we believe in and what we believe about Jesus. And his, his desire in this book is to portray a picture of Jesus so that as we see him for who he really is that, and then put our faith in him, that we may experience the life that he offers. And that is uh, so relevant this morning as we dive into John chapter 13, because we're gonna see John turn the corner and we are going to see him move us and drive us towards what is the culmination of Jesus's life and ministry. It's the pinnacle. It's, it's the climax. It's what all of what Jesus has been doing up to this point has been leading towards. And that is ultimately going to be when Jesus gives his life away so that those of this world can experience the life that he offers. This past weekend, I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I was picking up a, a credit for graduate school, and the weekend was designed as a leadership summit for myself and uh, my classmates to grow and expand our, um, just our leadership skills so that we can continue to be effective in our um, various places of, of work and, and spheres of influence. And, and on uh, Sunday, our professor was talking about what the leading research is saying today about what the best leaders do. He's saying the best, these are the virtues of the best leaders. These are the vices of the worst leaders. And, and this is what, not what subjective opinion is. This is what the research is showing in terms of um, employee satisfaction, employee retention, uh, profitability, so on and so forth. And he said, I want you to do this. I want you to think about one, uh, either think about a great leader that you've had or think about one of the worst leaders that you had. And what immediately came to my mind, I've had, I've had great leaders, uh, by the way, in my life, but one of the, what came to mind immediately was actually one of the worst leaders uh, that I had. And that was my, my junior year of high school and my varsity basketball coach. And I, I, I don't know how else to say it. He was just the meanest, angriest son of a gun that you'll ever meet, okay? He was just, he was just, he was, when he would yell at you, his face would, sh would turn all different shades of red and spit would fly out of his mouth and you'd have to do your best to not pay attention to the spit as it was coming at you so to increase your punishment. Here are just a, a few stories. I remember one game, uh, I was the starting point guard and I, I remember one game, we were probably 20 or 30 seconds into the game and um, the, the ball got stolen from me, and the, the guy goes to the other side of the court, lays it in, two points. Immediately, 
his name is Coach Leonardi. Leonardi pulls me out of the game, sits me on the bench, doesn't say a word to me, and I sat on the bench for the rest of the game. For the rest of, I mean, no, no explanation, no like, are you gonna coach me? Are you just gonna, you know, what are you, he just sat me. Okay, here's another one. Um, uh, he, there was one, I was, there's a different game. I was, I was playing actually pretty well and he yells something at me from across the court. And, you know, it was kind of loud in, in the, um, you know, in the gym and I couldn't quite hear him. So I kind of gave him like one of these, like, I can't hear you. And I was about to receive an inbounds pass from my teammate, but before he could pass it in, I heard the horn blow and I look over and I see my replacement coming in and I run over and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm coming out of the game. And as I walk, as I run by him, he goes, don't ever look at me like that again. Sat on the bench the rest of the game. Okay, this one's my favorite. We were, um, we were playing a game and we weren't playing that very, we weren't playing very well, surprise, surprise. Okay, imagine um, that uh, under his leadership, probably not bringing out the best in his players. Um, he, we were playing against a team that we should have easily beaten, but we, it was a tie game that was about a minute left and uh, they steal an inbounds pass, they score and they go up two. He gets so angry that he takes his, you know those little whiteboards you like draw the plays on? He gets so angry, he takes his whiteboard, turns around and he smashes it on the bench with like shards of whiteboard and that stuff underneath, whatever that stuff is, starts, you know, flies all over the place, all over the place. And um, so the, any, well, well, the interesting thing was is that we, next possession, we go, we go down, we score, we tie the game. Next possession, we're on defense. We steal the ball and we go down and, and we have about like, it's like under 10 seconds left and we have the ball. And so he calls a timeout because he wants to draw up a play. <laughs> but he doesn't have anything obviously to, so he, we just find like the biggest piece that we can find, you know, like underneath the bench. You pull out this piece, has some whiteboard on it, but mainly like that particle board stuff that's underneath. And he draws up this play that we could hardly make sense of. Anyway, a teammate of mine ends up making a game winning shot and we win. The stink of it was, is that after the game, as we were making our way towards the locker room, we could overhear him. He was having an interview with a, a, a reporter from a local newspaper, and he was talking about this play that he drew up and how it was this great play and how he's used it for years and years, and he used it when he coached D1 at Chattanooga and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, is this guy for real? I, this past weekend, my professor, what he's saying is that, you know, what the research is showing about what the best leaders today do is that what they do is they, they close the gap between themselves and their followers by embodying virtues like kindness and consistency and vulnerability and empathy and humility. And, and that stood out to me, humility, because the way he described humility was that what, here's what the best leaders do. When the team wins, you give the team the credit, but when the team fails, the, the leader takes ownership of it. The worst leaders do the opposite. They operate in pride. When the team wins, they take the credit. And when the team loses, they blame the team. And all I could think about was Leonardi. And, and after this game, the only thing he had to say to a reporter was about a story about how great he was. That's, that is the, the type of leader that he was. And it's no surprise that he was fired at the end of the year. Jesus, the Jesus we worship, the Jesus we serve is amazing. And what we are going to see this morning is that his leadership is completely different than the leadership we find so often in this world. 
humility, vulnerability, empathy, kindness, consistency. 2,000 years before there was even such thing as leadership thought, there was a leader who was literally writing the book about best practice. 2,000 years, years before a growing leadership and leadership uh, you know, development was even a thing, there was a leader whose approach was so radical, so distinct, so upside down, so inverted that his followers could hardly receive it. And yet it was the very thing that transformed them and transformed the world. And we're, this morning, we're going to look at a story from John chapter 13, and we're going to see Jesus dramatically close the gap between himself and his followers. We're going to see him approach his followers in a way, the, the best leaders, what they do is that despite differences in positional you know, position or power, despite differences in, in authority, and responsibility, the best leaders have a, have a way of making their followers feel like they're just like one of them, making them feel close, making, making them feel like they're part of something. We're going to see Jesus put this on display. And my hope and my prayer is as we see it, we would, our eyes would be opened again to just how amazing he is. Just a, what, what an incredible king, leader, shepherd, savior he is. And that we would be compelled to say, you're the one that I want to follow. You're the one that I want to give my life to. It's you, Jesus. There's no one else like you. There's no other leader like you. And not only would we be compelled this morning to want to follow him, but we would be compelled to want to emulate him and be like him and do as he does and love as he loves and serve as he serves. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to, to John 13. And that's where uh, we are going to begin. It's in, we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. And this is what it says. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to, to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their, their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example 
that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Right here in the beginning of, the, of this passage, we can tell that John is turning a corner. And these are transitionary verses that are ultimately leading, as I mentioned before, leading us towards what is the crux, the seminal moment of what the gospel is all about, what John's story of Jesus is, is bringing us towards. Again, where Jesus is going to give his life away on behalf of all of us. And there's a few different ways that we know that this is a transition moment. The first comes in verse one, where it says this, Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave the world and to go to the Father. There's an obvious illusion that, okay, what, has, what he's recorded and what has been talked about, it has been talked about. Now, what we are moving towards is something that's ahead of us. We're moving towards something that we are going to begin um, feeling anticipation towards and expectation towards. The second way that we know that this is a transition moment is the rhetorical choice that, that John uses here. And, and, and they're actually gonna see a reversal of pattern and how he represents uh, and how he tells the, this story starting John 13 and all the way John through, uh, through John 17, the way that he tells the stories and then he describes the interaction between Jesus and his disciples is actually different and distinct from the way he had before. In John 1 through 12, the, here's how the pattern worked. Jesus would do something amazing and miraculous and then afterwards he would give an explanation about it. He said there would be an illustration and then an explanation. An illustration, explanation. That's the pattern that was used. Here in this moment, what we are actually going to see in these next five verses, you're going to see a lot of explanation, a lot of anticipation, a lot of, of foreshadowing to something that has not happened, but that's something that will happen. And so John is, again, he's moving, he's saying, okay, I'm turning the corner here, and now we're moving forward into something new. One of the things that uh, we know that and we can see him doing is that he talks about that, that this is happening just before the Passover festival. It's vital for us to understand that John is making a very clear connection between Jesus and the Passover. That those, that those two things are very much um, interwoven. And in fact, Jesus is the more fuller expression of Passover. And it says here that the Passover has not happened yet. It's still in front of us. And so John is saying, there's still something coming forward to look forward to that Jesus is ultimately going to do that's going to kind of tie the knot and, and, and put the bow on the connection between, between who Jesus is and the festival, the most central festival that the, that the Jews practiced and celebrated. Because what Passover was, was the moment in Exodus where God delivered his people out of slavery and ultimately towards the promised land. And the, the way it happened was he commanded them, you are to sacrifice a lamb and take the, the, lamb, the blood of that lamb and paint it over the thresholds and the doorposts of your home so that when the angel of death comes to visit you, which was the last plague in Egypt, it will pass over you and you will escape death. And what he is saying here very much is Jesus is that Passover lamb. He is very much who's shed, whose blood will be shed and that those who receive it and those who identify with it and take it as their own, the angel of death or death will pass over you and you will be delivered out of bondage, out of slavery, into freedom. So John, is, he's moving us towards the, this moment. The last thing that he, that he does here is, 
in the end of verse one, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is a very dramatic thing for John to say. It's a very overarching thing for him to say. It's a very conclusionary thing for him to say. He loved his own even to the very end, so as to foreshadow and prepare the readers and listeners of his gospel. What you're about to see is proof that there's nothing that's gonna stop Jesus from loving his own. What you're about to see him do is gonna be evidence that Jesus will love his people all the way to the end, no matter what he faces, no matter what he goes through. So it's clear. If I didn't belabor it enough, it's clear uh, that, that John is moving us into this, this climax, into this, this seminal moment. Verse three, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. This is an, an essential acknowledgement that John makes that Jesus is preeminent, that he is superior and supreme in every way, that every dominion, every governance, every authority, every, everyone who is powerful and wise by any definition uh, of, the, of those terms are still underneath Jesus, that he is high and above anyone or anything else that ever has been and ever will be. It's he, he is setting the stage by making sure that, he, that we know, the readers or the listeners know this, and that Jesus himself knew that he was of a person of ultimate authority. And even if the disciples didn't know this or maybe didn't fully glimpse it yet, they still knew him as their Lord, as, as their Lord and rabbi, still a person who was their leader, the person that they respected, the person that they looked to for instructions on how to live. And the reason why he includes this verse and why it's that the, the power dynamics, the authority dynamics are, are highlighted here is because it sets the stage for how amazing it is of what Jesus is about to do, that the person who is that high goes that low. And it's actually, it's Jesus making himself just like anybody else and even more so making himself lower than everybody else. It's what sets him apart. That Jesus, the one who's high and above anyone or anything else, the fact that he goes low is what, is, is what verifies and is the evidence that proves that his name is high above any other. He's setting the stage for how, there's not even words to describe it, how preposterous it is for what Jesus, we're about to see Jesus do. He's wanting to, to make sure we understand just how amazing this is. Verse four, so he got up from the meal. This is Jesus. He got up from the meal he took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We need to picture this setting here. Jesus and the disciples are uh, reclining at what was probably a low table. They're sitting down, either the meal is just about to begin or it has just begun. And it's at this moment that Jesus gets up from the table. Now, th this would have been a very curious thing for Jesus to do. And we can all identify that with this. When, when someone who is powerful or someone who has authority sits down to have a meal, if they need anything or want anything, they, don't, they never need to get up again. It's always brought to them or done for them. 
And so for Jesus to, to get up from the table, to inconvenience himself in that way when they were, when they were about to eat, that would have, he, was, he would have drawn attention to that. That would have been a significant thing that they would have taken note of, notice of, of like, well, what's Jesus doing? The next thing he does, it says, is that he takes, out his, he takes off his outer garment. The garments that you wore often symbolize your status in life. That Jesus and his disciples, they were just kind of average, middle-class people. And so they had, there was, they, they wore undergarments, but they also had outer garments, and that signified that. If you were wealthy and of, of higher stature, you had very nice outer garments. But if you were the, a, a, a lowly person, if you were a servant or a slave, what you typically wore were not an out, wasn't an outer garment. It was, an, it was just the undergarment. And that's how people could look at you and know your status and your state in life. And so for Jesus to take off his outer garment was a pretty outlandish thing for him to do as their rabbi, as their teacher, as their leader. Because what he's doing, he's donning the attire of a servant. He's putting on, he's presenting themselves to them as somebody who's much lower than he really is. He's, he's presenting himself and approaching them looking like a slave, looking like a servant. Let's make a broader connection here. Jesus, the king of of the universe, the king of the world, every, the highest power, highest dominion, highest authority, everything else is under his feet. He has a kingly heavenly robe. It says the train of his robe fills the temple. And yet Jesus, he takes off his robe in order to come to earth. He takes off his heavenly robe. Kings never did that. Kings would never take off their robe in the presence of a subordinate because it empties them of their authority and their power. This is what signifies that I'm the most powerful one in the room. For him to take it off and to come to, come to earth was a very self-emptying act. He's removing and emptying himself of his, of his power. And that's the very thing he's doing here. He's emptying himself of his authority and his power, and he's positioning himself in front of his disciples as a, as a servant, as a slave. And then he fills a, a basin with water and he goes and he washes their feet. He washes their feet. Now we, we all know this, our feet are like not the most attractive part of, of, of the human body typically, right? They're often smelly, sweaty, stinky. I mean, and, in, and especially in this culture, they wore open-toed shoes. They lived in a, in a desert region, which was very dry and dusty, and they walked everywhere on foot. So there is no doubt that their feet were filthy, that they were dirty. My kids put on flip-flops here in Arizona, and they walk around for a couple hours, and they got that black grime stuff all over the bottom. Their feet were nasty. This was a dirty job. And actually, in fact, this was such a lowly job that... that that even the rabbis commanded the community, commanded society, that if you are a master, you actually can't ask a Jewish slave to do this. You can't ask a Jewish servant to do this because it's too low. It's too menial. The only group that can be asked to do this is a Gentile servant. That's the only group that can, can do this very thing. And so for Jesus to remove himself and inconvenience himself from the table, for him to take off his outer garments, present himself as a servant, and to do the lowest of the low task that, there, that can be done in society, one that Jewish servants never even did. This was, you fill in the blank, this was, a, this was a preposterous, it was outlandish, it was 
It was unthinkable, unimaginable. How could he be doing this? And there's one final observation I'd love to, to make here. It says that Jesus knew that his time on earth was coming to an end. He knew his time was over. His death was imminent. He knew what was in front of him. And yet he wasn't concerned with himself. You know, I have a paper due tomorrow and that's the only thing I can think about today. Jesus is going to die and he's not, he's not self-absorbed. He, he's not thinking about, oh man, like he's, it's not even on his mind. The only thing he's thinking about, how can I show these guys how much I love them? How can I show them the significance of what I'm about to do for them? How can I, how can I be with them in a way to, to communicate, to, to evoke my commitment and my fidelity to care for their needs? He's so, totally not concerned with himself. He's not, he's not absorbed in his own stuff. He cares about them. He cares about us. This was an amazing thing for Jesus to do, and, and these guys knew it. And of course, Peter um, was the one who had something to say about it. Um, he came to Peter, and, he, and when he did, he, he said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, just like Peter would, that do the whole thing, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You can't do this, Jesus. You can't. It's not proper. It's not right. It's not fair. Why are you doing this? This is not acceptable. And you know what? He was absolutely right. Peter was absolutely right. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It wasn't proper. But that's Jesus. That's what Jesus is like. His way of loving, his way of serving, his way of caring, his way of extending mercy and grace, it completely shatters all of our preconceived notions and our, all of our worldly standards about propriety and about fairness and about justice. He completely inverts it and turns things upside down in the way that he leads and the way that he loves. You're right, it's not fair, it's Jesus. And there's really no other way to, de to describe it. It's just him. There's no other leader in the history of the world who would do something like this. And yeah, that's, our, who, that's the leader that we follow. That's the king that we serve. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. But Jesus saying, I don't care about what the earthly standards are. I belong to another kingdom. And, and in my kingdom, this is how things operate. This is how things work. This is, this is the MO in the place that I come from, where the king, the king actually serves the servants. And finally, he, Peter, though he resists this at first, he, he ultimately, um, you know, he ultimately accepts what Jesus is trying to do. But before that, Jesus kind of has to help him see and has to help him understand. Peter, please let me love you like this. Please let me serve you like this. If, if you, I, I need to wash you. I need to, to make you clean. And he was trying to help Peter understand, Peter, actually, if you don't let me do this, you're rejecting my love. And that, that's actually an interesting thing that it's kind of a nuance of this scripture, but I want us to consider and to grapple with. 
To be loved, to be served by somebody else, you have to be okay being the recipient. You have to be okay receiving. And some, for some of us, that's like, okay, I, I like to receive. But some, for, for others, we actually, it's actually hard for us to receive. Because in a backwards kind of way, we think that by remaining in the place of serving somebody else, we actually preserve our own dignity. We actually preserve our own, um, yeah, I, I'm willing to give myself away and serve other people, but I don't really want to receive because to receive would have to acknowledge that I need something that someone else can give me and I, that, I would, that, I, that, there, that there's something that someone else can be for me and do for me that I can't do myself. And you actually have to own up to that and accept that in order to, re- to receive from somebody else. Jesus is saying, you have to let me love you. You have to be willing to receive my act of love. You have to be willing to receive my service. I want to wash you. I want to take away the stain of of sin and shame. I want to make you clean. I want to rescue you. I want to give you a new life, a new hope, a new future. But for that to be your reality, you have to let me do it. And that same invitation is for all of us here in this room. That Jesus wants to make you clean. He wants to wash away sin. He wants to wash away shame. But you have to be willing to let him do that for you. You have to be willing to say, you know what? There's actually something not okay here and there's nothing that I can actually do about it. There's actually something not okay. There's only one person who can do something about it. There's only one person who has the water to wash this stain away, and that's Jesus. Won't you let him in today? Won't you let him love you today? Won't you let him serve you today? Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he asked them, do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand the significance of this? Because what I've done is, is it's symbolically representing what I have done and what I'm about to do. It's representing the fact that I, the king of heaven and earth, took off my, my divine robe, my kingly robe, and I came to spend time on this earth and made myself just like you. And I'm one who's closed the gap between me and you to be close to you, to spend time with you when you were needy, when you were broken, and quite frankly, not that easy to be with. That is what I have done. And not only that, but what I'm about to do. I'm about to be the Passover lamb. And my shed blood is going to wash away forever that stain of sin and that stain of guilt. And there is nobody like Jesus. There's just nobody like him. You can look through every history book. You can, you can go to the library and try to find somebody who does, who does this. You'll never find somebody like him. He's altogether, he, the, he, when he is called the Messiah, he is the anointed holy one who saves. He's entirely set apart. There's no one like him, never has been, ne- ne- it never is, or never will be. There's nobody like Jesus. And his final charge to them after revealing John through this book is revealing the glory of Jesus. Jesus through his actions is revealing who he is. His charge is now I have shown you 
what I'm like. I've shown you who I am. Now I charge you to do the same. I charge you to be like me, to love like me, to serve like me. And so that challenge is extended to each and every one of us in this room. And if you think that you don't, like, that, you, that this doesn't apply to you, then I just want to unpack this real quickly, that there are three different authority and power dynamics at play here in this story. So where somebody's beneath somebody, where somebody's above somebody, and where somebody's side to side. Jesus here in this story is both above his disciples and is above the universe because he's the king of the world. But he, in this story, he's portrayed as being subservient to his father. He's not gonna go die because that's what he wants to do. He's gonna go die because that's what his father asked him to do. And he's serving his father's purposes. He's serving his father's plan. And so if you in your life find yourself underneath somebody else, whether at home or at work or, or wherever, you are called to follow Jesus and to serve. The second dynamic is somebody's above somebody else. Jesus, is, of course, is the Lord and the teacher of his disciples. He's the Lord and the king of the entire universe. And yet we see him serving. And so if you find yourself in a position of authority, in a position of leadership with those underneath you, guess what? You're called to serve like Jesus. And finally, Jesus commands his disciples that as I have done for you, so you also ought to do one another. Peter and John, they sometimes had a little bit of, of disagreement about which one of them was greater. They wanted, you know, which one of them is the, is the closer disciple? Which one of them is higher? Which one of them is lower? Guess what? They both are. They're both higher. They're both lower. You're called to serve one another. And so if you have somebody above you or you have somebody beneath you or you have somebody next to you, you're called to serve. I'm pretty sure that means that we're all called to do this. We're all called to serve in this way. We're all called to love in this way. But some of you may say, well, Andy, I don't like that because there are some times where there are people in my life who don't deserve my service, all right? They don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be served, whether you have a boss who is a jerk or, you know, your spouse is having a rough day or your child is not obeying you or you have a roommate who time and time again will not put their dishes away or clean up after themselves or make their bed or whatever it may be. You feel like they don't deserve it. Can I just remind you of this? Judas was in the room. Judas was in the room. Judas the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who sold Jesus out and said, I'd rather have a little bit of money than to preserve my friend, the one who's spent hours and hours and hours and days and months and years of time together. I'd rather have a little bit of money than to, than to, than to protect him. He sold him out. Jesus did not stop at him in his service. He served everybody who was in the room. So if you feel like that there's somebody in your life who doesn't deserve to be to, to be served, then I don't know what to say to you. Jesus just showed you that you have no grounds to make that claim. You have, you have no right to say, I'm not gonna do that. And I just wanted to take a moment to, to say this. 
one of the most powerful ways that we can reveal the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world is to love the unlovable and serve the unservable. What better way to show others what Jesus is really like, who himself came to spend time with people who hated him, who, who himself came to, to love people who were broken, needy, and often were difficult to love, who loved and served people and washed the feet of his betrayer. What better way for us to reveal himself, who Jesus is to the world than by doing the same? And there, uh, you know, here recently, the, um, the, the Supreme Court, they um, voted to overturn um, the, the longstanding law connected to, uh, to the case of Roe v. Wade. And there's a lot of people who are, who are happy about it and there's also a lot of people who are angry about it. And there's a lot of people who, that this is actually pouring gasoline on their, their fire and their hatred towards the church. People who are upset with that decision and people upset with, with that that's the direction things are going. We live in a world that is contentious. And we live in a world where people may not like us because we claim the name of Jesus. Can I just say, can we use this as an example and as a template that we, that that does not give us an excuse to stop loving and stop serving the world. We need to love and to serve the world no matter what, even if they hate us. That does not change our posture. It does not change our behavior. We're called to love and serve like him. And so I would challenge us and charge us if there's somebody in your life who may has, has a bone to pick and has beef with you because of what has recently occurred, please have this in your mind and say, oh, Jesus, help me love them and serve them the way you would. And so as we move towards response here, I, I just want to close by looking at um, one final scripture because I believe it's gonna help us as we grapple with our own hearts and the, the things inside of us that make it difficult for us to, to love and serve like this. I, I think that there could be many different things going on. It's like, actually, I hear you saying that, but that's really hard for me to do. But I, I want to highlight too, and, and I think by, by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, I think it's going to help us give, give language for and a picture for, for what, we, what we need to do business with on the inside if we're going to obey Jesus' command and his charge. This is what it says in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so there are two things that I, I want us to look at and want us to explore in ourselves as we go about seeking to 
apply this passage to our lives and make this part of how we how we live and love one another. And the first is that we need to deal with our preference for comfort. We need to deal with our, pres- uh, our preference for comfort because serving is uncomfortable. It's inconvenient and it's often costly. Jesus inconvenienced himself when he got up from the table. He presented himself as a a servant, which was certainly an uncomfortable thing to do because that's not his true status in life. And he got down on the ground and he, he dealt with filth and he dealt with dirt. Serving is an uncomfortable thing to do at times, but we need to be willing to lay down our comfort in order to to serve somebody else. Jesus left his place in heaven and his relationship with his father, and he came to this earth, and it says he didn't even have a rock to, to lay his head on to sleep. And he spent time with people who were challenging and difficult, and he was betrayed, and he was hated, and he was killed. He said, I care about people more than I care about my comfort. I care about what you need. I care about what's going on in your life than I care about me remaining comfortable. So let's learn from his example and say, Jesus, I'm willing to lay down my comfort in order to serve somebody else. The second thing that we need to deal with is pride. We often resist serving because we do not like the way it makes us look. Or maybe another way to say it is, we don't like serving because it means that we won't be seen. Because a lot of times serving is doing the thing that nobody else wants to do or nobody else will even notice. And we don't like that because that's not the path to promotion. That's not the way to work up the ladder. That's not the way to to build a name for myself. That's not the way to increase in my power and my authority. And Jesus, as our example, he did not come and, and make himself an earthly king so, and, and, and do things for his own benefit. He laid down all of his rights and laid down all of what would, people were actually tempting him to do and urging him to do was to take his proper place of, of, of power and authority. He said, I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to get something for myself. I'm here for you. I'm here to give you what you need. I'm here to meet you in your place of difficulty and challenge. I'm here to communicate empathy and kindness and humility to you so that I can win your heart and I can change your life. We need to be willing to lay down our pride in the way that serving will make us look in order to engage in serving. He's our, he is our King, He is our Jesus. Let's learn from His example. Let's follow suit. Let's be like Him and reveal Him to the world. Our Jesus who dramatically closed the gap between Himself and us so that we can have a relationship with Him, who dramatically closed the gap so that we could have access to heaven and be citizens of His kingdom forever. Let's learn from example, His example. Let's lay down our comfort and lay down our pride so that we can put who he is on full display.
final thing I'll read here is a quote from Francis Chan in his book, Letters to the Church. He says this, just imagine if the church was made up of people who would literally go to the cross for one another. How could people shrug their shoulders as they witness this kind of love? Why don't you pray with me? God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the way that you have served us. We thank you for the ways that you have gone to the, to the lowliest place to take away the stain of sin. And you were not ashamed to identify with us and you were not ashamed to go to, to that place of service. And I pray that that revelation of that today would, would do away with our pride and us thinking that we're above anything and us realizing that the king of the universe has served us like this, how could we not also serve others? Would you come and bring a greater truth and a greater transformation of that into our hearts today? And would we receive your love as you have loved us so amazingly? And as we receive it, would we be compelled to respond? Would we be compelled to do differently, to live differently, to behave differently now because of you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand with me and we're gonna move into a time of response. I invite our ministry team to come on forward and, and really the response today is, is giving us the opportunity to do business with God and say, God, I wanna lay down my preference for comfort. I wanna lay down my pride. If, there, if when I said that, that touched something in you, you recognize, yeah, that actually is something that I wrestle with. I invite you, implore you, once you come forward and, and respond and, and let our team um, minister to you and let them help you as you seek the grace of God in that area. Secondly, as we're responding, I would love for every person in the room to be asking God, God, who in my life do you want me to serve? Who in my life do you want me to show your heart towards? And use this time, you can either come forward, use this space in front of you or in your seat, saying, God, lead me in, this, in, in responding to this. Show me who needs to be loved and who, need, who in my life needs to be served in this way. And as God brings that to mind, I encourage you, be quick to obey, be quick to respond and follow his leadership. Follow his lead as he guides you. And of course, if there's any other need in the room, anything else, relational, financial, spiritual, we're here for you, we care about you. Please use this time, come meet with the Lord. Let's not leave this place without giving him the opportunity to bring truth and life and revelation to all of us. Let's respond together.